Let's pray. Lord God, as we open your words together, please help us to understand what we read and hear. Holy Spirit, please cause this truth to live and grow in our hearts and minds. Father, may you be glorified in us as we walk together as disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you had those moments in life when you're on the brink of starting a new chapter and if you sneak a peek over at the next page, it's kind of scary? Back in 2003, my wife Sharon and I were facing one of these new chapters. After a lot of talking and a lot of prayer, we were about to try and start a family. And we had no idea what lay ahead, literally no idea. But we knew that whatever was to come, God would be walking with us. And nothing is a surprise to him. So we could trust God and follow the path that he was setting before us, come what may. And now in 2020, I'm about to start a new job. If you're hearing this on the 2nd of August, it's literally tomorrow. That's another new chapter. Perhaps not quite as intimidating as becoming first-time parents, but it's still significant, particularly in these unusual times. Events in our lives often mark a substantial change, and sometimes we have to take a moment, a deep breath, utter a quick prayer before moving forwards. And that's when we don't know what the future holds. Imagine if you did know, and that the future you saw coming wasn't particularly pleasant. In today's passage from Acts, we see Paul moving into a new chapter, literally and figuratively. And you can imagine that he had to take a breath, set his face like flint as he turned that page. Because as we've already seen in Acts, and as we'll see today, he often has divine revelation telling him what's next. He has an inkling of what's coming. It's a long passage today, reading from the last verse of Acts 22 and to the end of Acts 23. Acts 22 verse 30 to Acts 23, 35. I'm going to read the entire passage from the New Living Translation. Just about this translation, you might have noticed a few of us here at Freedom using the NLT recently. This version's an excellent attempt to clarify the language in the Bible to make it more accessible to a broader audience. If you're following along in your own Bible and you notice some of the words don't match at all, that's the reason. A very handy version to have on your bookshelf or in your Bible app. So, Acts 22 verse 30 is where we start. The next day, the commander, other translations say the tribune, the commander ordered the leading priests into session with the Jewish High Council. He wanted to find out what the trouble was all about, so he released Paul to have him stand before them. And then going into chapter 23, gazing intently at the High Council, Paul began, Brothers, I have always lived before God with a clear conscience. Instantly, Ananias the High Priest commanded those close to Paul to slap him on the mouth. But Paul said to him, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? Those standing near Paul said to him, 
Do you dare to insult God's high priest? I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realise he was the high priest, Paul replied. For the scriptures say, you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. Paul realised that some members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. So he shouted, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, as were my ancestors, and I am on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. This divided the council, the Pharisees against the Sadducees. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angels or spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all of these. So there was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, jumped up and began to argue forcefully. We see nothing wrong with him, they shouted. Perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. As the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid they would tear Paul apart. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. The next morning, a group of Jews got themselves together and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 of them in the conspiracy. They went to the leading priests and elders and told them, <clears throat> we have bound ourselves with an oath to eat nothing until we've killed Paul. So you and the high council should ask the commander to bring Paul back to the council again. Pretend you want to examine his case more fully. We will kill him on the way. But Paul's nephew, his sister's son, heard of their plan and went to the fortress and told Paul. Paul called for one of the Roman officers and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something important to tell him. So the officer did, explaining, Paul the prisoner called me over and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took his hand, led him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? Paul's nephew told him, some Jews are going to ask you to bring Paul before the high council tomorrow, pretending they want to get some more information. But don't do it. There are more than 40 men hiding along the way, ready to ambush him. They have vowed not to eat or drink anything until they have killed him. They are ready now, just waiting for your consent. Don't let anyone know you told me this, the commander warned the young man. Then the commander called two of his officers and ordered, get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea at nine o'clock tonight. Also take 200 spearmen and 70 mounted troops. Provide horses for Paul to ride and get him safely to Governor Felix. Then he wrote this letter to the governor. From Claudius Lysias to his excellent excellency, Governor of Felix, Greetings. This man was seized by some Jews, and they were about to kill him when I arrived with the troops. 
When I learned that he was a Roman citizen, I removed him to safety. Then I took him to their high council to try and learn the basis of the accusations against him. I soon discovered the charge was something regarding their religious law, certainly nothing worthy of imprisonment or death. But when I was informed of a plot to kill him, I immediately sent him on to you. I have told his accusers to bring their charges before you. So that night, as ordered, the soldiers took Paul as far as Antipatris. They returned to the fortress the next morning while the mounted troops took him on to Caesarea. When they arrived in Caesarea, they presented Paul and the letter to Governor Felix. He read it and then asked Paul what province he was from. Cilicia, Paul answered. I will hear your case myself when your accusers arrive, the governor told him. Then the governor ordered him kept in the prison at Herod's headquarters. Okay. So a passage of this size can be a little hard to swallow in one go. So I will break it down into nine bite-sized chunks, nine smaller episodes that gives a handle on what's happening here. So this is the nine-part overview. One, Paul is taken before the Jewish council. Two, Paul provokes division in the council. Three, Jesus appears to Paul and encourages him. Four, the Jews plot to assassinate Paul. Five, Paul's nephew tips off the Romans. Six, the tribune protects Peter, Peter, uh, not Peter, Paul. <laughs> Seven, the tribune's self-serving letter. Eight, armed guard escorts Paul to Caesarea. And nine, Paul is taken to the palace. So the first section, Paul taken before the Jewish council. We are following hot on the heels of the scene where the tribune, this Roman commander is panicking because he's mistreated a Roman citizen. And note that the Romans are by implication free to flog Jews and Greeks all they like, with or without trial. But you'll remember that Paul has dual heritage. We see that in his Roman name Paul and his Jewish name Small, uh, Saul. Struggling with my words this morning. It was a smart move on Paul's part to point out that he was Roman. It spared him a very unpleasant experience, but the Tribune still wants to find out what's behind all the kerfuffle. So he demands that the Jewish religious leaders come and give an explanation. Paul is taken before these leaders, and the first thing he does is to state that he has a clear conscience before God. Well, of course, the high priest freaks out and says to his mates, smack him in the mouth. And they do. That's a rather extreme way of saying to Paul, you're lying. And Paul responds, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. I can't quite work out here whether Paul has lost it, because we can't hear the, the tone of voice. But given what we know of Paul, I think it's just as likely that he's saying this calmly. God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. 
This is a stern rebuke either way, and it may be that it was also a prophetic statement. We know from other historical records that this high priest, Ananias, ultimately died a violent death. Nevertheless, when he's told this is the high priest, and we must assume that Paul didn't already know that, he softens his tone considerably. And Paul once again proves his incredible biblical knowledge by quoting Exodus 22:28, which says, you must not dishonour God or curse any of your rulers. In other translations of the NLT, incidentally, we read that Paul calls the high priest a whitewashed wall. And this vividly recalls something Jesus said to a very similar audience. This is Matthew 23, 27. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. We're off to a rowdy start then. The second section, Paul provokes division in the council. Next, in an incredible manoeuvre, Paul sets the two religious groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, against each other. He says, this is all because of the resurrection. And so these two groups start arguing because the Sadducees, who are in the majority, say there's no resurrection, but the Pharisees are all for it. It's a bit like someone running into a meeting at Greenbelt or Spring Harvest and shouting, everything you do is predestined. Amicia argy-bargy between the Calvinists and the Arminians. Why did Paul do this? Why did he provoke such an argument? Well, we know that Paul was absolutely 100% committed to proclaiming the truth. And here he's proclaiming arguably the most important and controversial truth, that his message is all about the resurrection. But is it all about the resurrection? Absolutely. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 14, Paul writes this. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And he carries on in that vein. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he didn't beat sin and death. And if Jesus didn't beat sin and death, then we're all doomed. But you know, and I know, we're not doomed. We're saved. The cross and the resurrection are what separates our gospel from every other religion out there, all of them false and without hope. The row escalates and they have to take Paul out of there, yet again moving him for his own safety. See how God keeps preserving Paul until his proper time comes. Still, you can imagine this whole thing being an unsettling experience for Paul. Third section, Jesus appears to Paul and encourages him. 
Let's read this verse again. Acts 23, verse 11. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, Be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. Oh, wow. Have you ever come back home after a long, difficult day, looked at a loved one and said, are you a sight for sore eyes? Well, now, imagine you've come home after that difficult day and Jesus himself is waiting for you. And he says, chin up, keep going. I'm with you all the way and smiles at you. Did a shiver just go down your back? In the circumstances that Paul was facing, knowing that he had more trials to endure, there could be no one more comforting to him than his Lord, the one who had gone before, the one who had suffered the cross and come out the other side, victorious, living, glorified. Take courage, Paul. You've testified about me in Jerusalem and you will have your wish to testify about me in Rome. I wonder if Paul slept at all that night after that experience. I wouldn't be surprised if he'd sat up all night worshipping and praising God. Or maybe he just drifted off into a peaceful sleep. In Isaiah 51.12, God says, I, yes, I am the one who comforts you. So why are you afraid of mere humans who wither like the grass and disappear? He is the God who comforts us. In lockdown, in bereavement, in relationship breakdown, in feelings of guilt and misery, he comforts us. Thank you, Lord. Fourth section, the Jews' plot to assassinate Paul. Well, that comfort that Paul's just received, he has to draw on it immediately. A group of Jews hatch this plot to ambush and assassinate Paul, and they're so adamant they're going to do it, that they swear they won't eat or drink until he's dead. Well, they were in for a disappointment. If they'd kept that oath, they would have died of thirst long before Paul's ultimate execution. This wasn't his time. Now this murderous plot is ratified by the senior religious leaders. The chief priests and elders go along with it. If we weren't in lockdown, I'd be looking at Keith right now and saying, Keith, have you been involved in any assassination conspiracies lately? I mean, it's ludicrous, isn't it? They're supposed to be upholding the law, God's moral code, and yet here they are planning to break the sixth commandment, do not murder. And they've already broken the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness, don't lie in legal proceedings. This is a pretty extreme approach, wouldn't you say? But Jesus warned us about this. This is John 15, 18 to 19. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Fifth section, Paul's nephew tips off the Romans. 
Now, we know almost nothing about Paul's family, but in this scene, we're introduced to Paul's nephew. And judging by the paternal way the Tribune treats him, he's probably a boy or a young man. And he's a young man of integrity and courage. He hears about the plot and he's not going to let that happen to Uncle Paul. We don't know what Paul's family thought of him, whether they were proud of him or ashamed, but this nephew, at least, thinks he's worth rescuing. He tells Paul, and then he tells the Tribune. Sixth section, the Tribune protects Paul. The Tribune springs into action. Paul is one man, one prisoner, albeit a Roman prisoner, and about 40 Jews are planning to kill Paul. Look how seriously the Tribune takes this threat. Get 200 soldiers ready to leave for Caesarea at nine o'clock tonight. Also take 200 spearmen and 70 mounted troops. Provide horses for Paul to ride and get him safely to Governor Felix. Now, wait a second. A boy has come in and told this Tribune about a plot. A boy. And the Tribune's reaction is to throw, like, half the might of his garrison at getting Paul out of there. I don't know what was going through this Tribune's mind, but wow, he took it seriously. Do you think the Holy Spirit worked on his heart, caused him to treat this as a dire emergency? Back in the 80s, when I was a lad, there was this American TV show called Sledgehammer. I loved it. It was a spoof cop show about this detective called Sledgehammer, who would always go overboard with everything. He has a massive gun. He shoots first and he asks questions never. And in the uh, first episode, we see Sledgehammer chasing down a sniper. And we end up with a sniper on the roof of a building. And Sledgehammer, from the street, takes out a bazooka and blows up the whole building. And he, he turns to his astonished colleagues, fellow officers, and says, I think I got him. Now, this reaction from the Tribune reminds me a bit of that scene. It seems excessive, doesn't it? It's not like an army is coming for Paul. It's a bunch of civilians and priests. But there is no way Paul is being harmed on the Tribune's watch. And you know, sometimes in our lives, not often, but sometimes we see this extravagant grace from God. If the Tribune's reaction communicated anything at all to Paul, it was that God wasn't going to let anything get in the way of Paul's race to the finish. Can you imagine how encouraging that must have been to Paul? He's told he's going to be transferred, and he probably expects two or three soldiers, you know, a respectable armed guard. And instead, he finds himself in the middle of nearly 500 professional warriors. It must have blown him away. He would have known that no matter what was to come, God would not be thwarted. Amazing. Sharon and I have experienced this extravagant, 
extravagant grace of God on a few occasions, but one particularly memorable one. Our son, Morgan, who's profoundly disabled, he sometimes receives respite care at Clare House, which is a children's hospice on the Wirral. And this has meant that Sharon and I have been free to take our other son, James, on occasional short breaks. Morgan's care is too complicated now for him to go on holiday anywhere that lacks all the specialist equipment he needs. He has a good time at Clare House. There are quite a few organisations that fundraise for Clare House, and one of these is Sporting Bears. They are a collection of motor enthusiasts. They love cars and they love raising money. In 2013, Clare House approached us about an event that was being put on by Sporting Bears. It was to raise money as well as to give a treat to some of the families whose children access Clare House. Um, to cut a long story short, on the 2nd of July 2013, Sharon, James and I found ourselves in London in a Bentley Mulsanne. One of a cavalcade of 10 Bentleys, one for each of the families attending the event. And these 10 Bentleys drove us from our hotel through London to Westminster Palace with a police escort. Not any old police escort, by the way. This was the special escort group, the ones with the white motorbikes. Never heard of the special escort group? Well, this is what Wikipedia has to say about them. The unit's purpose is to provide armed, armed motorcycle escorts for members of the royal family, protected members of the government, visiting royals, heads of state, and other visiting dignitaries. <laughs> they closed roads for us, and crowds started lining the streets, taking photos of us as we drove past, grinning our heads off. The special escort group were amazing, so polished. All the traffic cleared for them, and we went the wrong way round roundabouts. And the journey that would have taken ages in normal traffic was over in minutes. Incredible experience. We were going through some difficult times when this event happened and it was just like God smiled on us that day and opened a small window to heaven, pouring out his blessings. If indeed there are Bentleys in heaven, and let's face it, there probably are. We didn't deserve it at all. Extravagant grace. Seventh section, the Tribune's self-serving letter. I've given this section this heading because it's important not to lose sight of the humanity of this man. He is fulfilling God's will in protecting Paul, but the way he does it isn't commended. He plays fast and loose with the facts, and that's probably for at least two reasons. Firstly, he's afraid he might get into trouble. He was actually on the brink of flogging a Roman citizen without trial, which was totally illegal and he's supposed to be upholding Roman law. He also says in his letter, Paul has done nothing deserving imprisonment, but he's kept Paul in prison himself. So he's probably worried about personal repercussions. And secondly, he wants to look good. In his letter, he makes it sound like he got wind of this terrible, angry crowd that was about to kill a Roman citizen and he swooped in to the rescue. 
But that's not quite what happened, is it? <clears throat> Back in chapter 21, we read about the Jews who dragged Paul out of the temple and who were about to kill him. And someone alerts the tribune. But at that point, he has no idea what's going on. So he rushes down with some soldiers to find the crowd physically beating Paul. And instead of arresting the violent people in the crowd, he arrests Paul, the victim. So this is not him rushing to the aid of a Roman citizen. This is him assuming that this must be some sort of villain. Otherwise, why would the crowd be beating him up? I mean, that's really poor, isn't it? If we saw that sort of thing today, the police arresting victims and letting muggers and rioters walk free, we'd be outraged. Now, before they're able to carry Paul off with the crowd calmed down somewhat, Paul, who's presumably a battered mess at this point, starts preaching again. And he tells the whole story of his conversion, and then when he gets to the point where he dares to say that God has sent him to the Gentiles, of all people, the crowd explodes again. So the Tribune has seen all of this and heard what Paul said. And nothing that Paul has done here breaks Roman law. But the Tribune then orders his soldiers to take Paul to the barracks to be examined by flogging. Literally beat the truth out of him. He doesn't mention any of that in his letter to the governor, does he? So although he really is rescuing Paul from a bad situation and sending him to relative safety, I think you might say the Tribune is being economical with the facts. And that, of course, would be no way for a Christian to behave. Eighth section, armed guard escorts Paul to Caesarea. So this large force of Roman soldiers guards Paul on a <clears throat> too hot journey and they travel first 35 miles to Antipatris and they must have been going at a cracking pace to get there in one evening. <clears throat> they all rest in Antipatris after the long journey then the next morning half the force returns to Jerusalem. Of course it makes sense to have Paul most heavily guarded for the first leg of the journey. Once Paul's a good distance from Jerusalem there's much less reason to think the Jews will be around to attack him. From this point, with rested horses, Paul and the mounted troops make their way from Antipatris to Caesarea. That's another 27 miles. And Paul is taken to the governor Felix, who asks where Paul is from. Paul is from Cilicia, which is within the Roman province of Syria. Ninth section. Paul taken to the palace. Felix decides that he has jurisdiction to hear Paul's case, possibly because he hails from Cilicia. So he orders that Paul be taken to the Praetorium, one of Herod's palaces, and guarded there. And that brings us to the end of this story, ending on a bit of a cliffhanger, you might say. <clears throat> what will happen to Paul next? Will he receive justice? Will God spare him a while longer? Well, you can cheat and read ahead if you like, or you can <clears throat> wait for next week's sermon. It's up to you.
I mean, binge reading the Word of God is completely guilt-free. So if you want to, fill your boots. How might we summarise this passage? What message do we take from it? In particular, for me, this reminds me that God is always with us on the mountaintops, in the valley of the shadow of death. It reminds me that his plans are good and that his plans are unstoppable. It reminds me that although we live in a fallen world among people who disregard God's law, still we can and must remain faithful. Jesus died for us after all. Being obedient to him is the least we can do. And this passage reminds me that he is the God of comfort. And I pray that that is a comfort to you, whatever circumstances you are facing. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you preserved Paul through these circumstances. And that in doing so, you facilitated the spread of the gospel so that we can be here today listening to your word and worshipping you. Thank you, God. Amen.